Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. When I finished the last episode, I said I would continue the discussion about ADF helicopters and largely being a person of my word, I shall. I gave a rather gloomy assessment of the future of Taipan, saying I thought it was unlikely that they would fly again in Australia. Sadly, this time I can be a little bit more definitive, and um, I believe, I can't explain exactly why, but I believe that Army and and Defence have taken the decision, basically, that they will remain grounded forever until they can be disposed of, whatever that might look like. Now, without rehashing it, every single thing that I've written and said on the topic, which is quite a bit, I consider the grounding to be unnecessary. The preliminary investigation of the tragic accident that happened during Talisman Sabre that took the lives of four service personnel has presumably concluded that the helicopter was not to blame because if it had been, that information would have been communicated to all other people operating the NH-90 family of helicopters, of which Taipan is one. This is how it works in the commercial world. If there's some sort of accident, major or minor, the imperative is to let everyone know as quickly as possible so that remedial action can be taken so that circumstances are never again repeated. If it's a big problem, then the worldwide fleet gets grounded. And I'll just remind people of the 737 MAX episode. Once it became clear that there was a huge problem there, all of them were grounded. Now, in the case of Taipan, there are about 500 of these helicopters in service around the world. Last time I checked, with about 14 different users. The rest of them are flying, including the eight that New Zealand has. Now, I think that that is sufficient circumstantial evidence to conclude that it was something else that caused that particular accident. Now, the decision to ground the remaining, well, the Australian fleet, I wonder who is taking these decisions and I wonder who is in charge because there's also been a lot of media reporting in the last few days about the looming bushfire season and the difficulties that Australia might be in. I've read articles about fire trucks used by emergency services volunteers not being up to the required standard. I've read other articles about commercial helicopters such as Chinooks not being rented in time. This is the background to what looks like it might be a very hot and dry summer. Now, why in these circumstances has the ADF decided to ground the helicopters? Of the 47, because of issues of routine maintenance and repair and things like that, you would expect 30 of them to be available at any one time. And I can assure you that in a hot, dry summer where fire is a risk, those 30 helicopters could make a real difference. But nope, that's just not going to happen. I don't know why. Like a lot of these things, Defence and the ADF just don't release any information whatsoever. And there's a rich history of this when it comes to the helicopters, and I do mean Taipan and the other European helicopter, the Tiger, 
In particular, I've referred to a 2016 report, the Houston report, into maintenance issues uh, with those two types that's been deeply buried. Uh, information about other incidents or, or accidents likewise never seems to see the light of day. Now, I am definitely not a conspiracy theorist. I am definitely not some, you know, weird QAnon junkie, but I'm pointing out that there is a repeat pattern of suppressing information, and that gives rise to the suspicion, that's all I can say, it gives rise to the suspicion that the ADF have something to hide, that these reports reflect badly on them, and so their instinct is to cover it up rather than getting it out there in the public domain. Now, I'll use as an example the ditching earlier this year of another Taipan in Nara that got a lot of coverage. I've spoken about it before. I have speculated, well, actually, no, we, we know the outline that there was an engine failure at low level and then some other stuff happened and the helicopter ditched safely and everyone got out of it with only the most minor in, um, injuries. <clears throat> Since that time, officially, we've heard nothing further. I speculated that the engine that failed might have been one of many that did not receive a software upgrade way back in about 2011 or 2012 designed to stop that particular problem occurring. Of course, no response from defence, so that stays out there as a strong possibility of what caused the problem in the first place. But then what happened? I've received some additional information. I have to be a bit circumspect. I certainly don't want to be on the receiving end of an AFP visit going through my sock drawer, as they have done with other journalists. <clears throat> it seems that, of course, with these sorts of, of incidents, no matter how much training you do, there must be an, an element of, of terror. No amount of time in the simulator can surely prepare you for the full reality of what happened. Now, the information that I have is that there was indeed a lot of chaos and confusion. And in that chaos and confusion, what happened was that the engine that had failed was accidentally powered up and the good engine was shut down. Now, if people think that's improbable, let me say that it is unlikely. Again, people are trained very thoroughly to try and avoid these things happening, but it does occur. It occurred in the uh, the commercial world. In 1980, uh, 1989, there was what was called the Kegworth airline disaster in the UK, in which 47 people tragically lost their uh, lives. And without you, you can Google it. It's all on the internet, un unlike the... Taipan ditching. And what happened was confusion on the part of the pilot and co-pilot. It was a variant of, an air, of the aircraft 737 that they weren't overly familiar with. And in the heat of the moment, exactly that, they powered up the engine that had failed. It caught fire. They'd simultaneously shut down the other one. It plowed into the ground short of the runway. So there's a precedent for it. And again, I don't know officially, but I am suggesting to all listeners, I would say there is a pretty good chance of 
that happening with the Nara incident. And so you're starting to see the picture. Defence presumably won't release the information about that because rather than being able to blame the helicopter, which was faultless, they would have to expose failings in their own processes and they're simply not prepared to do that. My own formative experience, by the way, I'll just mention this because this is the basis for another story in the future. Around 2011, when Tiger was getting a lot of criticism locally in Australia for its unreliability and difficulty and support and all of that sort of stuff, I went to Afghanistan at the invitation of the French. I spent about a week at uh, the base at Kabul International Airport embedded with the French helicopter unit, the French helicopter battalion known as the Mosquito Battalion, Mosquito the insect, and they had four Tigers, one of which had to be on hot standby, and then a mixture of gazelle helicopters and a number of transport helicopters, a couple of Cougars and a couple of Caracals from memory. And, and all of that was supported by 100 technicians on base of whom 22 were Tiger specialists. And they had no difficulty at all keeping that fleet up and running. It was just a seamless operation. Now, there is a difference between being in a combat zone because everyone is available like 24 hours. You're not going off in the afternoon to collect the kids from school and stuff like that, which tends to happen when you're maintaining helicopters or anything else like that on base. Totally different environment. But even allowing for that, it was clear that there were no problems at all with the reliability of Tiger itself. Everything had to do with the support systems. And when I discussed the Australian situation with the French, they were utterly baffled. And we did go through these differences in circumstances, tempo of operations and how they did things and, and all the rest. No one could really understand why Australia was having these disproportionate problems. We can see the same pattern with uh, Taipan. Placeholder there. I'm going to come back to that on a future occasion. But moving right along, because I want to cover submarines once again, I'll just remark we found out during the week simultaneous conversations with both Defence Industry Minister and the Defence Minister himself that we won't be seeing the review into the RAN surface fleet until next year. They both said before the second month or by the second month of 2024. I simply ask, what on earth is going on? I mean, this has just been dragging on and on and on. The surface fleet is not that big. We're not talking about the United States Navy or the Chinese Navy. We're talking about a medium-sized to small Navy with like around two dozen ships involved and how it is not possible, the study having been con concluded on schedule two or three weeks ago, to have read it by now and looked at the recommendations and basically said yes, no, uh, rather than cogitate on it until the start of 2024. Anyway, we shall move on. Now, other noteworthy stuff. AUKUS legislation that is required in the US is still stuck in the Senate. There was another burst of publicity in mid-September that once again 
the Republicans had dug in their heels and they weren't going to pass it. Now, the sort of the AUKUS cult members that I've referred to previously have said, oh, well, it's just a temporary thing. It's, you know, political games. This happens all the time. Well, I observe it's pretty serious political games. And if political gamesmanship is prepared to hold up the passage of AUKUS legislation, what else could it hold up in the future? And that legislation, by the way, has been misreported in Australia as somehow giving the go-ahead to this vast plan to acquire second-hand Virginia-class submarines and then new ones, and then after that, the British-Australian AUKUS submarine. No, no, no. That legislation is only, in a sense, enabling legislation. It puts in place the guidelines for how this might occur in the future, including this unprecedented transfer of $3 billion Australian dollars to the US Treasury. This has never happened before, and special legislation is needed to allow it to occur. At the uh, Submarine Institute of Australia conference in Adelaide on September the 19th, from memory, Richard Miles was finally asked the question that I've been dying to ask. Namely, since the United States is able to decommission their own nuclear-powered submarines at the end of their lives, why should Australia, at huge expense and at huge risk, build our own facilities for those two second-hand Virginia-class submarines? Surely the sensible thing would be to return them to the US at the end of their lives and say, you know, have them back. We'll pay you. Thank you very much. But it's going to be much, much simpler and easier for all concerned if you take care of that part of the problem. Now, to my enormous disappointment, but not my surprise, uh, the Defence Minister, Richard Miles, basically said, oh, well, um, it, it's, it's, all, it's been part of the discussions that have already been had, and we are not going to revisit the issue. We can't do that. Well, for me, this is an act of absolute political cowardice and negligence, and I don't say that lightly. Just look at the situation in the US. As I mentioned, the, the, legis the basic legislation hasn't passed the Senate. We don't even know which submarines Australia is going to receive, or whether we will receive them at all, or, or how much each individual submarine is going to cost. So we are at a preliminary stage. It would be, I would have thought, maybe not the easiest thing in the world, but a relatively simple thing to address. It just needs the minister and a few others to put on their big boy pants. I've worked for a cabinet minister, and this is how you do it. You call up Lloyd Austin or whoever else you're dealing with in the United States and say, excuse me, there has been a change of circumstances here in Australia, and it is no longer going to be possible for us to decommission the submarines here. That is because the federal court has just ruled against a low-level nuclear waste dump that we've been working on for 20 years. And as a result of, of that, we have to re-examine the entire situation. Oh, and by the way, I'll just look here and, ah, yes, see, I've just found it. I've just found it. Yes, Mr. Secretary, I've just found the legal advice. The legal advice says, in the light of the decision of the federal court, regarding a low-level waste disposal facility, the chances of approval 
for a high-grade nuclear waste disposal facility being passed are close to zero. And, Mr. Secretary, you would understand that in Australia, like in the United States, we have a separation of powers. We cannot overrule the courts. We have three co-equal branches of government. The federal court has spoken, and that's that. Now, I hear you say, why don't we legislate our way around it? Well, unfortunately, as you would also know, in the United States, that requires a majority in the Senate. We do not have it, and we do not foresee the circumstances of having it again in the lifetime of the project. So in the interest of making progress, we are just going to have to address the decommissioning issue now rather than everything coming to a crunch point in 10 years' time or whatever when a huge amount of money has been spent and a huge effort has been made. However, Mr. Secretary, the answer is there. As I indicated to the listeners, you're saying this now to the Secretary, you take them back. These are, or will be, US submarines built in the United States with US nuclear reactors and with US nuclear fuel out of your Cold War stockpiles. So please do everyone a favour. We'll get that one out of the way. Now, another message to Richard Miles and his staff and and officials in defence. This kowtowing to the US has been to the detriment of Australia for years. This sort of automatic, oh, no, we can't argue with them. Oh, we can't risk upsetting them. It is just so much BS. And if you people aren't brave enough to make the call, I'll tell you who is Malcolm Turnbull. He stood up to Donald Trump, a a very uncomfortable conversation. It's all on the internet. You can go and read the transcript. That's how you do it. You just be polite and firm. You don't run for cover and go, oh, no, we can't possibly raise it with them again. Oh, no, it's going to upset them. Uh, what, what, what will we do? The sky is going to fall if we voice any criticism at all about the verbal deal that we have agreed to. It's just nonsense. Now, I've got more say on other aspects of this, including the three billion dollar payment but with an eye on the clock i shall save that for next time thank you for listening that's today's asia pacific defense reporter for more in-depth articles expert opinions and exclusive interviews visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com stay informed stay ahead this is your source for all things defense until next time